Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where we support survivors in their healing journeys, uh, whether they be survivors of sexual assault, abuse, childhood, molestation, trafficking, all real facets of sexual misconduct and sexual violence. I am your host, Katie Kessner, and when I was only 18, I was on the cover of Time Magazine as one of the first in the world to speak out nationally and publicly about my own survivorship. I was raped my first year of college and took on the entire world back then uh, to try and make a difference in raising awareness, sharing my own story, encouraging others to speak out, and ultimately have spent my entire life and career to help uh, continue this path to ending sexual violence in all forms. Today's episode is with Caroline Wimmer. If you can imagine, only nine years ago, Caroline was 15 years old. Imagine she's hanging out with her boyfriend at her grandparents' home, and it's a beautiful countryside pastures in Austria. And the boy, the boyfriend, raped her in the garden cottage on this estate. Up to that point, this was just a lovely garden cottage to her, and it was a safe place. But then not only did this place change for her, but he hurt her so terribly, he robbed her of how she felt safe in her own body and the right to feel safe. So... Like many of us, we struggle as survivors to reconcile how this very intimate violation affects our understanding of our personal space and our own bodies. Caroline describes her struggles with this exact question, and I think you'll be so impressed with how she has overcome those anxieties and real stressors around eating. So I... I can't wait for you all to hear her transformation from a girl and now into a powerful legal advocate um, and and powerful young woman challenging us on all facets of human rights. Listen in. Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. I'm so pleased to have with me today my co-host, Claire Kaplan. Could you introduce yourself, Claire? Yes, thank you, Katie. So again, I'm Claire Kaplan, and I would like to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be really difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So I just want to encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Please reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. And today our special guest is Caroline. Caroline is coming to us from Austria. We are delighted to have you join uh, us and share your story and your journey. Uh, Caroline, would you kindly share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and your background? Thank you so much, Katie and Claire. My name is Carolina, but everyone calls me Caroline and I prefer to be called Caroline. So I'm half Austrian, I'm half Indian. My dad is from Austria and my mum is from India and I was born in the US. Um, some of you might be wondering why my accent is not American. Um, that's because I actually also grew up in London, in Vienna and in Saudi Arabia. So I've seen quite a lot of different places and that has really shaped me as a person. 
Lovely. Thank you so much, Caroline. So, you know, we always start out with our survivors sharing, uh, you know, a a, a little bit of that experience with which you are, you know, going on this journey with all of our other survivors. What brings you to the microphone as a survivor? What brings me is what happened to me when I was 15 years old, so nearly 10 years ago. And um, it's still something that stays with me. You know, it's just imagine you're going through your day and there's a sort of shadow and you realize that that shadow is not your own. And that's sort of how I feel when I deal with this. So when I was 15 years old, person who was actually my best childhood friend and he was also my first boyfriend raped me and honestly I didn't realize what happened because I didn't want to realize what happened and I can just tell you that right after it happened I went to the shower and I tried to sort of drown myself in it not because I was suicidal, but because I wanted to get rid of the dirt that I felt. I felt so unclean and I felt so sick, truly sick to my stomach. Um, I couldn't eat and I just said to myself, I have to get rid of it. I have to get rid of it. I have to get rid of it. And I kept thinking that in my head as I... Uh, sort of curled up under the shower and I didn't come out of the shower and um, my parents actually had to get me out um, because I just didn't want to come out and I said no no I'm gonna stay a little longer and um, they said well actually you should get out now because you've been there for a very long time and that's when I got out so yeah, yeah thank you that was so brave of you and it's so interesting because I think so many survivors feel that sense of dirt and I also queried this you said I get it you kept saying it I needed to get it out out what did you feel yeah. it was it was the you know I, I know when a male violates a female a female um, or you know, or when a body part intrudes upon us, whether no, no matter our gender, or when an object is intruded upon our bodies without our consent, there's mm -hmm. there there's that literal sense of it get it out because I almost feel like it that physical experience creates such a visceral response, like it's so clear that that's one level it and and then there are many other ways you could interpret it out of me so help our listeners think about that for themselves and on your your behalf all right so it's a bit complicated so allow me to sort of slowly walk you through because this is a very difficult topic for me so my thoughts are jumbled but i'll try to be as concise as possible when i refer to it there are different levels. On the one hand, um, I have to tell you about my experience is that the condom broke. So a lot of things entered my body that I didn't want to, um, apart from the male genitalia, also sperm. And for me, I wanted to sort of remove that from my body as 
as unusual as it may sound, but that's what I wanted to do during the shower. And on the one hand, I also wanted to remove the shame because I felt so shameful and, as I said, dirty and unclean. So I wanted to get rid of all of that. And it was something that I just couldn't do. And it was so frustrating because I, I was on the shower. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But it just I couldn't get rid of that feeling and that that horrible sinking feeling of what happened but like I said I didn't think of it as rape at first I just knew that I felt like I had to get rid of something that was dirty unclean and for me absolutely shameful I hope that was somewhat concise I that's a, a I think that's a very good description and thank you for sharing that I I if I can ask a, a question also um can you give us a little more about when you were raped, like where it happened and, um, uh, you know, all the sort of, just sort of uh, the situation that you found yourself in, if you could give us more of that. Absolutely. So um, the setting was at my grandparents' country house in the garden house, to be precise. And they have a, a country house up in the mountains in Austria. So it's actually a very idyllic place. It's also highly touristic. Lots of people go there. And it's a place that I loved as a child. Um, and exactly what happened was there's the house and right next to the house was the garden house. And I remember what I wore that day. I had just worn my beige shorts and a very normal orange top. I was a bit of a colorful bird as a young child. And I think to myself, I actually just wore something that I'd worn every single day. I never gave much thought. And sometimes I catch myself wondering if I'd worn something wrong. And I think many in that position when it's actually definitely not the clothes. So if it helps everyone to know, it was actually in a place that I loved as a child that I felt safe in. And I think that's what made it worse for me, is knowing that I was violated in a place that was supposed to be my sanctuary. And it, my family was actually in the house when it happened. Um, they just didn't know about it. They were asleep at the time um, because it wasn't nighttime, but it was um, their nap, midday nap. My family does that and nobody, nobody knew what happened. And uh, nobody thought that something that could have happened, I guess, is. So it was for me, and to me still is sad, because I, I don't see the place the same way anymore. And if I go back, it's just hard for me. And it, it makes me feel unsafe to be back in the place that I used to love so much. So, Caroline, I, I wanted to go back to kind of just loop back to this best friend, male. Yes. Yes. I think it's, I, you know, I think we, we interview people from all different cultures and backgrounds and ages and stages. And so you described, let's just talk a little bit about your relationship with this rapist. You said he was your best friend. So you had known him for years where families grew up next door. Like that. I have that question. Like, how did you know him? How did you understand him to be your best friend? And what did that mean to you at age 15? And then second question is, could you have ever thought in the time you knew him that he was capable of this kind of treatment of you? Um, so let me begin. I, um, my 
families actually grew up next to each other in an in a said it was my country house and um he is our neighbor's step grandson so my grandmother and his step grandmother have known each other for over 50 years because their family has the house for a very long time um they started already building it very much in the 60s so it it's it's a very close family relationship and out of that, he, he's there. So you can imagine that we grew up next to each other. I was every single vacation since I was a baby. And we grew up next to each other. And I remember having closer contact with him when I was eight years old. And from there on, we actually were inseparable every single holiday. We used to play in the garden, either at my grandmother's garden or his step-grandmother's garden. Well, neighbors, so it really wasn't very difficult. And we just had so much fun. Um, I remember that I used to love playing football, which isn't in, in the US soccer. Sorry, yeah. I should clarify soccer. And I used to play with him a lot because I um, also at school and I wanted him to train me because he was actually in, in a school team himself. And I thought if a boy would train me, that would be really, really cool. And he, he did that with a lot of grace. And he honestly, he didn't go easy on me. And I absolutely loved that. So I, I felt that there was such a huge connection with him because we used to play so much for so many hours. And then we all we often did very silly things as well together. Silly as in things that, you know, you do as a child that you're not supposed to do. You just, you know maybe pluck out a few flowers that you're not supposed to pluck out and things like that. So we just had a lot of fun together. And over the years, that's just sort of how I associated him. This, this one who just brought me happiness um, in a time when I moved around a lot. Like I said, I've grown up in different places. So as a diplomat's child, for me, sometimes it was very difficult then. I felt that during my difficult moments, he was the sort of the connection that I had. And when I was 11 years old, um, he was basically my first kiss. I assure you, it was not fun. It was sloppy and not very nice. But that's how I think sometimes first kisses could be for some. That was my experience. But it was consensual, that I have to say. That was consensual. Uh, we did have a relationship. I just realized that that's just not something that would work. And we went back to sort of being friends, but um, let's say there were some residual elements there, some residual feelings there. So let me let me just put a little frame. Eight years old, we really got very close friends. Eleven years old, sort of first boyfriend girlfriend thing. At thirteen years old, there was the, I guess you can say, first breakup. Ender aged, but. So tender age, I admit, but I started early and I don't regret starting early. That's just me. Um, so at 13. And for me, I have to keep saying this also in the background. Just keep in mind that I identify as a lesbian now. So like keep all the amount of jumble in my head at that point. There was a lot. I just thought because I cared about him so much that that must be that. But I didn't realize there are many different kinds of love out there. So then at the age of 15, we sort of had the discussion when I came back to Austria, because like I said, I was living abroad, I only came for holidays, um, that we would um, have sex together. And when I was away, for me, that was a sort of an abstract idea. 
you know, and I, I didn't think of it so much. I mean, it sounds so odd, but I was far away in a different country. I was in Saudi Arabia. So I was in a completely different culture. I was just focused on myself and I didn't realize the implications of what I was discussing. And that was just, that's really the truth. I didn't, I didn't realize that I was what I was asking or what I was agreeing to at that. And I want to say now to everyone, I think that's okay. If you don't realize that sometimes I don't think it's a bad thing. I felt like I should blame myself for that. But now I think honestly, it's okay to not understand it at that point. And then came back to Austria for a holiday. And when it really came down to it, so we were at my grandparents' then garden house, I realized I didn't want this. I, I, I realized what, what was happening. I said, no, okay, I don't want this. And, and I told him that. And that's, that didn't get respected. And he didn't understand my no. And he kept pressuring and pressuring and pressuring until I gave in. And ultimately, throughout the entire time, I didn't react at all. Um, I didn't do anything. So I just just froze like a bunny caught in headlights. I suppose that's exactly how I felt, frozen, paralyzed, and just like I couldn't move. Like I, I, I sh knew that I should move, but I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Um, and I, I even tried to tell him in between as well. I said I wanted him to stop and he said, no, that means we won't be actually having sex. And he just continued. So there's that. I think I answered a little bit more than your question. I'm very sorry. Um, Claire, I know you're going to have some more, but Caroline, I think we should, I just want to, your story is really close to my story, honestly. <laughs> I was 18 and the way you described trying to get your rapist to stop is very similar to the strategies that I used. And I think many survivors use when it's someone in the same relationship that you had with this guy. I I wanted to, you know, I I think all of us as survivors, we replay a lot of things in our heads. And on the podcast, we really try and help, you know, all all of us as survivors think about those dialogues, we, that, those flashbacks. So a couple things you said that I wanted to loop back to. When you said you told him no, or like, this is not what I want, I, d I did the same. And we all try to do that in different ways and different things that we think will work, but still not make someone mad. He was your friend, right? So you were trying to make him understand what you didn't, what your boundary was. And he persuaded you or didn't listen to you. And I, I think thinking back now when you're older, that part of ourselves, because I think a lot of us blame ourselves that we're not successful in explaining well enough to our rapists that we have a boundary. It's still never our fault, Caroline, of course. But I think that dialogue comes to play. It's like a replay button. And it's hard to think about it. And, and, and I landed myself in my healing journey when I thought of it not, you know, you can't blame yourself for not being good enough at saying no. 
and sometimes that comes from thinking about why the perpetrator didn't hear us and blaming him for not hearing us. So can we delve into that aspect of what happened to you, if you're comfortable? I am comfortable. Um, and thank you so much also for sharing that because um, I've read your story and it, in some cases I often felt that you really sort of experienced the feelings that I did. And that was one of the reasons I, know. I actually joined Caroline, as well. Yeah, like, Caroline, yeah. you're scaring me because I feel like you and I were so on the same brain path in what we went through that now hearing you and I'm so glad we met and I'm so glad you're on the podcast, I'm so but, glad too. but I, you know, I think you have a different, you still have a different voice that you can bring, not mine. And I would love for our listeners to hear your perspective. I think that the way I described what I didn't want was clear in the sense that I think it's pretty obvious when someone starts to freeze that something might be wrong. And I think it's no woman's fault if she feels that she didn't explain properly, as you said. And I blame myself for nearly nine years and I don't want anyone to blame themselves. So I want to tell everybody, if you feel like you didn't say no clearly enough, it's not your fault. It really isn't. And you probably actually did because he knew that I didn't want it, but he just did it because he wanted it, basically. Um, he knew that this wasn't okay. He knew that I was freezing up. He even mentioned that I froze up. Like, how can you basically mention that without realizing that you are honestly overstepping your boundaries there? Or what I could say if for someone who doesn't, realize it air quote perhaps they don't want to realize it that would be another way for me to see it but if i just want to talk about my experience then i would say if i on my part believe now after after all these years that he knew very well what what was happening and he just didn't want to see that and he didn't want to think of it that way he didn't want to say he didn't he just didn't want to stop and it was his decision because he said, well, we discussed it before, so it should be okay now. Mm. And I think that's the important element, right? Instead of right. saying, well, if you say no now, this means no. But, oh, no, you said yes before, so I'm going to take what you said earlier and I'm going to just go for it, even though I realized that you were completely uncomfortable. You know, trauma starts at zero, right? Trauma starts at the moment the ends and it, it, it is happening already but the ramifications last you know someone walks out the door or gets up off of us and they are they're done they're not going with any flashbacks or nightmares they're they're all set and yet we sit with and i know there's there's been moments where i had to rethink how i understand touch how i understand boundaries i couldn't sit in a room, I was scared to say, if I wasn't near the door, I needed an escape route. I, I wanted to make sure that I always felt somehow I had an element of control. I couldn't sleep next to a wall because I was raped up against a wall. So, you know, I think all of us have those things that say, I just don't think I can ever do this again because I feel too frail. 
and then you have to overcome them or decide to live with them. So what did that look like for you, Caroline? Well, first, thank you, Katie, for, for sharing, again, your experience. Um, for me, again, I'm going to try to be so concise, but it's, for me, such a jumbled topic that I tend to have a little jumbling and my way of communicating may seem a bit weird. But I'll try my best. Triggers is something that, how do I put it, evolved, as you mentioned, after right? Obviously, but in the years after I developed new triggers. So I remember, let me just start when I was 15 and then just go on until I was, until today. So to explain what I mean. So just take me back, take us back when I was 15. And like I said, imagine this, imagine a very kid who loves bright colors and who basically goes around the world without a care and loves jokes and just enjoys life in general a little bit shy she, she's had a bit of a hard time with a lot but she's doing all right she's had some of her moments which are difficult but she's doing great now this kid is gone that kid is gone absolutely she she disappeared and katie when you mentioned wearing black that was something that surprised me so much because i'm actually known for wearing dark colors you will not see my color often. I don't remember the last time. So um, I tend to wear a favor black. You know, Dave, I was actually at the stables with my horse and I wore black. You mm. know, just just going to say it, I wore black. And that's been there since I was 14. Go figure. So that's that one element that's there. The other element is that when I, in the aftermath, in the weeks following what happened, I was sick all the time. The sense was I was sick to my stomach. I would dry heave. I would retch. I would vomit. I had um, stomach issues and diarrhea the entire time. I was stressed out. And my heart couldn't stop beating so fast. I felt like a little hummingbird. You know, they, you can see that hearts beat really fast. That's how I felt, except... Then your heart, my heart got stuck in my throat and it was very confusing and so much of it. So I had that and that came from anxiety, but then I had anxiety about it. It just got worse and worse. So in the weeks that followed, remember my heartbeat, it, it just went. And it has happened then in the years following as well that my heartbeat just went crazy um, because I was so stressed out. But I could, I can hear, I can hear the sound. I can hear the ba-dum-dum-ba-dum. I can hear it today, feel it, and I can feel it not just in my chest or in my throat, but I feel it vibrating all throughout me. So that happened the weeks after. Then I noticed that I got quite, um, I have been abused as well um, in a different context. So keep that in mind, but I was more jumpy than I used to be, <laughs> much more jumpy. Um, I don't like it if people surprise me when they're behind. I really, I mean, when I like it, it freaks me out. It scares me. It makes me feel absolutely unsafe. And it just makes me want to disappear. You know, I just want to just find the nearest exit and just run if that situation happens. Um, that is a huge, huge trigger. Sometimes smells as well, if that makes sense. Um, if I can, sometimes I feel uncomfortable with male aftershave. 
I can't explain really why of obviously because of the attack, but honestly, as a survivor, you don't think of it that way. You don't make the dots. I never made the connections. Caroline, well, I'm learning to now. Caroline, yeah. I, I want to tell you my solution to that. The solution to pollution dilution. So I like you. Same. I sit. I we are kind of twins in different continents. <laughs> Uh, different ages, but believe it or not, the smell of the cologne that this, the guy who raped me triggered me when I could smell it or anything like it, I would instantly get stomach as you and want to throw up. If we set up these triggers as little challenges, they're so helpful. Like when you undo a trigger, you're like, ah, I got that. I did that. Like how I could get an A on a calc test or a five on the AP or get into Ivy League colleges, or I could like get rid of a trigger. <laughs> what do you think, Caroline? No, absolutely. I think that's something It's so empowering, you know, for because I think so though many survivors like me, we feel that uh, our power and our dignity have been taken away from us. Mm-hmm. And being able to overcome a trigger, I think, gives us a sense of power back in a way. You know, uh, we don't perhaps feel less small. So that's how I would see it. And going back to the triggers, there are, I have quite a few, but I think the one that, or the two that really, really get to me or got to me a lot, um, one of them was that I cannot see um, on a series, for example. I cannot see any rape scene, any depiction of rape um, or assault. That triggers me really. It really, really triggers me, and I can't do it. And um, and it happened to me that I watched a very, really good series and had a rape scene, and it really was the aftermath was terrible for me. What happened was that I completely dissociated, and that's what I did over the years as well, that phase in my life where I dissociated and how that feels like is that you, I'm walking through the world with cotton, if that makes sense. So you just imagine that you're, you're just normally, you're just walking. You can, you can be anywhere. You can walk anywhere you like. Perhaps you're walking through your garden and perhaps you're walking and you are just all around you across your, your ears, your hair, your legs, everywhere. Every single part of you is covered in cotton. And you know that you're walking, but you don't feel that you're walking. If that makes sense, that is what happened to me. That's what happened to me when every time I saw rapes. And that's what happened to me also in different phases of my life where I, on the one hand, had to deal with the aftermath of my rape, but also with a huge amount of pain in my own personal life. So that's another trigger I had, which relates to other aspects of my life. Uh, one more trigger that actually I say has got a lot better for me is that I used to be triggered when I got slapped in the ass in a sexual way. You know that sometimes I, I mean, I don't want to sue, but I know that there are some people who like that. And that is fine for me. But for me, I remember being a person triggered by it, like really triggered, and I felt degraded. I felt less of a human and less of a woman and less of a person when that happened. And I know the people who did that genuinely 
did not intend for me to react that way and I did communicate what happened afterwards and they were very sad of course very upset and they were immediately very sorry you know that I felt so terrible about it but now I realize it's getting better and here's why it's because I've started um, to also build up trust so I trust my current partner a lot and I trust her if she does that I find it pretty awesome I mean, that's a lot of information, but for me, I realized that after my, my, my rape, I had a huge issue with trust. And of course it comes your best friend, your first boyfriend. How, how, how can you basically, my brain was like, how can I get over that? You know, and I had a huge time, a huge issue trusting anybody. And I realized that with the amount of trust I have now in my partner, this is getting better for me because I'm just starting to relax a bit more and um, feel more secure in myself. I think that's, that's important. Um, another reason I believe it triggered me so much is that I, after my attack, felt very uncomfortable in my own skin and my own body. And I have, I have developed an eating disorder uh, atypical anorexia um, in recovery actually my weight is normal everything that is you know something that's really thankfully on track but if you had seen me a year or two before you'd have you'd have seen a very different person so in general for me intimacy physical intimacy is always surrounded by a lot of triggers because after my attack as I said I feel so like an alien in my own body so imagine you're, you're looking at a mirror and what you see disgusts you. You don't like your body and you think your body is horrible in every way. And imagine that you can't even walk when if a mirror is closed and you find so uncomfortable, you have to like turn away. And if you look at yourself too long, you just feel horrified. That's what it was like for me with my eating disorder. That was, that developed after my attack that developed actually years after my attack so there are triggers which are associated with that i'm sorry it's a bit jumbled for me but you you're all able still to follow it that, that all makes that um, all makes a great deal of sense i'm sorry to interrupt i just think that um mm-hmm. want to affirm that your experience especially you know thinking of your eating disorder as an example that so many survivors experience that that um, seeing your body as something disgusting, um, uh, disordered eating, um, coping in those different ways that are really forms of self-harm um, is so common in survivors. And, um, and it is something one has to grapple with, I know, um, really for the rest of your life because it's always there. Uh, but sometimes it's under control and sometimes it's not. Yeah. And, Absolutely. Uh, Caroline, I would add to that, you know, thinking through our whole conversation on our interview, the eating disorder, as I'm listening and thinking with you, that's like, I want out. I want a new thing. I want to love a new body. I want to love a new shape. I want to love, and I don't even like the one I have anymore, and I don't know where to start to re-love it. I don't know, what do you think, Ellen? 
absolutely. And I mean, for me, after that, I couldn't look at my body the same way. So now I'd, I'd say, you know, girl, I had hips, I had my ass, like, really, it was there. We cannot lie. My trousers know the story because they tried to fit around me. I was never overweight, let's put it this way, but girl, I had those hips and they were there. It's like, you know, my upper body was like very skinny and then there was like this ass coming out. So honestly, after that, I was like, I can't love it. I hate it. I hate this. I hate that. I looked at myself and was revolted. It sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it. And so what then happened was that I, I stopped eating altogether. And I did a huge amount of sports together with that. So I trained for six to eight hours a day. Uh, four times a week, I did half marathon. Three times a week, 16 kilometers. Then, uh, which is in miles, I don't know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I ran a lot. I, and if I think about it, I also did strength training, of course, because, you know, you had to, like, I couldn't stop. I was obsessed. So that's why uh, my psychiatrist, I said it was atypical anorexia. It was the, the lack of food coupled with the extreme amount of exercise. She found that was interesting in a psychological perspective. So essentially what I did was I, on the one hand, I tried to carve a completely new body, which I did. It was just a very unhealthy body and I didn't have a period for over half a year. Uh, I lost a lot of hair. Um, and I tell you, as a half Indian, I had thick, bushy hair and it just all went away. Um, and I also, the second, the next thing I did was the running. I tried to run and run and run as if I was trying to run away, run away, run away, run away. And, uh, didn't help. Not just because I did, you know, rounds, same rounds and didn't actually run from one city to another, but actually also because ultimately I, I didn't deal with it you know I didn't want to deal with it so I try to find another way uh, can I interrupt here um, yeah. and ask then because that gives us a segue to um, and there you were struggling you had your um, you had the anorexia you were ex excessively exercising um, you were trying to basically get a different body um, how did you what 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 was the tipping point for you so that you yeah. were able to sort of move into it recovery and or healing process so it first had to get much much worse before it got better all right so the first step for me was to say well okay i do have a bit of a problem but it's getting better now uh and a week later i lost another 20 pounds so it got a lot worse and my kind partner was with me through all of that and she saw it and so what she did was instead of you know making me feel horrible about it, which some people did actually. She just cooked normally, you know, said if I want to have something, she'll be happy to give me some of it as well. You know, she'd cook healthy, balanced meals for herself. And if I wanted to have it, I could. Then um, she invited me to her family. And there everyone also did the same thing. They just had healthy, balanced meals and I could partake. And I would watch them, observe them eat calmly, and I realized this is a safe space. I started to relax a bit. And then I started to eat something a little bit with the others as well, and then I eat more. And then I said, oh, this actually feels quite nice. And at first I was completely racked with guilt, by the way. So it didn't, I didn't just eat and say, oh, that was great. I was like, oh, this is great, but oh my goodness, I'm going to be so 
fat, I'm gonna be so fat, I'm gonna be so fat. I would then weigh myself five times a day. So it was still iffy. And I definitely freaked out if I gained 200 grams. So I wasn't there, but it was getting there slowly. And the real then tipping point was, well, actually two things. It wasn't just one thing. The first tipping point was seeing my weight had completely plummeted on the scale uh, to a point that even I realized that something was off. Even though when I looked at the mirror, I thought, oh, this is a good body, a body which basically there was nothing left of me, but that was the body I wanted. But the scale, when I saw the scale, I realized the implication. So I couldn't see what I had done to myself, but I could read what I had done to myself. And yes, scales don't define everything. I'm going to put it this way, it doesn't. There are so many different factors, and I don't want to say I'm a medical person, obviously not, but that that made me realize that there was something off. Because for my my height and for my age, I was at a weight that just was so awfully low that it was very dangerous. That was the one little thing that made me realize, okay, so I like this body, but there's something there's something that clearly isn't okay because obviously I have lost a lot of weight, I have lost hair, I've lost my peers, so things are feeling a bit off. The next tipping point then was being with my girlfriend's family who all ate normally, you know, casually around me, uh, didn't force me into anything, but they just had it there. If I wanted to, I'd ask. If I didn't, I didn't. They just were there. And that was what I needed. Just people who are relaxed, who didn't look at me and say, oh my goodness, you have to eat now, you have to do this and that. They didn't do any of that. If I wanted to, I could. And that made me relax. And they didn't, make any sort of comments about my weight that could stress me because any comment if you haven't eaten so comments about weights are uh, are very triggering and instead they opted for different things they um said oh you look really like in your really good mood today so how, how are you doing things like that oh you look like you're, you're you're you know you're radiant you know things like that i had i felt like these sort of comments come as well and from my friends then as well they're like hey, you really have like red blushing cheeks today, girl. Look, you look great. So my best friend, um, she actually she looked at, hey, girl, you look good. Look good. Like, where did that come from? Because they were used to seeing this sort of gaunt figure. And instead of commenting about my weight, they simply said, you look great. Look good. And that made me relax even more. And then over the months, I started to relax a bit more. I would still freak out about my weight, but I would gain. So instead, I was gaining weight slowly, but it was there, and I was starting to relax because everybody around me was relaxed. And none of my girlfriend's family has ever commented my weight. I have to say that never commented. That had been the most helpful thing. They didn't shame me for being less. They didn't talk about my weight gain. The only thing they've ever really said is that I look good. Basically, and I always remember that my girlfriend's dad, he's always he's always so sweet with compliments and he's always kind and gentle. And that's what helped me is not having having a group of people that would just eat, wouldn't pressure me, wouldn't comment on my weight and instead focus on different parts of me. They would praise my hard work. For example, if I did something great, they're like, hey, you did really good in that. You did so great at university. You can be proud because I was so I'm always hard on myself. They're like, hey, you can be proud of this. Hey, 
you're doing this great, you're going to be fine. And they always had this little catchphrase, which they used for me as well. They said, you are very intelligent and you got this. And they would tell me that. So then in that environment, I started to slowly get better. And so in, in a sentence sense, there were two tipping points. And I can't say there was one. I'd say one led to the other. And that's sort of a very jumbled answer to a very straightforward question. Um, eat, recovery isn't linear, no matter what it is. I mean, you're recovering from an eating disorder, recovering from trauma. It doesn't, it's not like an uphill climb and it never ends. I mean, it's up and down and up and down. And hopefully it's up more up than down, you know. Yep. So this all makes sense. Um, I, uh, I know we're actually running out of time. but um, Go ahead, Claire. Um, I do want to get to this one thing, and that is, so... Um, when you came out, yeah. Um, w- tell me how. I'm curious to know if your experience as a survivor, if it may have influenced it. And I'll tell you my reasoning and, and why I'm asking, because I'm also a survivor and I delayed coming out because I didn't want to think that I'm only doing this because I don't like men. Yeah. And I'm wondering if if but, you know, I want it to be a positive thing. Tell me, was there any link for you? Or um, I'm just curious, and, and how much how much time after did you come out? Like, what was that process for you? So, for me, I always knew that I, I love women. I always knew that. Um, but I was a very good person convincing myself otherwise. And I had a phase um, where I decided that dating boys was my best option and my only option. And then I had a phase where I realized that uh, maybe that's not the case, but I wasn't so keen on saying that I'm, I'm a lesbian. Definitely wasn't into that. I came out to my parents when I was 19. I came out to some of my friends a little bit earlier, so over the years, 17, 18, sometimes even 20. It really depends on the people and things and how I felt comfortable because, you know, it's not something you don't just sit in a dinner party and at least I don't sit at a dinner party and people are talking about, you know, the the, the world economy and I'm not going to say I'm gay. So yeah. that's, <laughs> I have a very... Right, that's right. right. <laughs> so I have a, a very sort of a different way of going about it. But my, I guess my story as a survivor has nothing to do with my sexual orientation. That's different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like I don't like men. I do. I have, I have, I, have I, I, I value men. I, I love my girlfriend's dad, for example, right? I mean, I can't well, just say, you know, just because I don't, I don't want to, to be with a man in a relationship doesn't mean I don't like men. Caroline, I'm so honored and privileged to have you join us with your narrative, your story, your thoughtfulness, your willing to go there with your own analysis. Caroline, what's the last thing you would like to share with our listeners tonight? The last thing, um, thank you so much, Katie and Claire, is that all of you are incredible Every one of you listening right now, all of you are incredible. You are valued and you are appreciated. Even when you think you're not, you are. So whoever is listening, remember that you are so powerful, even in the moments where you feel you're powerless. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much, Caroline. And 
for all of our listeners, this has been another amazing, powerful Dear Kitty Survivor Stories podcast. We were so privileged to have you, Caroline, join us from, you know, many different continents away. And we have loved every moment with you. I want to encourage all of our followers, our listeners to please, you know, share Caroline's story on all of your platforms. Know that we're all volunteers and know that our hearts are with all of you who are survivors. Please visit the Take Back the Night website for more resources, including legal options but also just general resources for support. And please listen to all of our stories on the Dear Katie podcast, because you never know what one will resonate most with you. So thank you. And Caroline, thank you again. And everyone take care. Together we will shatter the silence and end the violence. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners and thank you for our survivors, wherever you are for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength and healing. Always remember self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.